Welcome. Thank you for listening to Spiritual Living with author and teacher Francois Feinberg. May the message you're about to hear earnestly touch your heart, and may it encourage you in your ongoing love of God the Father, your enjoyment of the Lord Jesus Christ, and your fellowship in both the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ. In Isaiah 35, verse 8, there is a marvelous prophecy regarding Jesus Christ as a kind of a highway, a road, if you will. It says, a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those, the wayfaring men, though fools, they shall not err within that way. Christ is a kind of a straight and narrow highway upon which the man and woman of God travels. Even in Matthew 7, he speaks regarding this. He says, Enter in through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter through it. Because narrow is the gate, And constricted is the way that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Christ is the gate. Christ is the way. If you and I veer off this highway of Christ, this highway of holiness, this highway in which there is no error, then you and I no doubt land in ditches. We get stuck. A tire blows out, and maybe even worse, we create a horrible accident. But then we need somebody to come and tow us out of the ditch. Spiritually speaking, if you and I remain in Christ, and we travel on this marvelous yet narrow and constricted way, then no doubt we will enjoy the journey, and we will reach the destination. But if we lose focus of Christ and we go after rabbit trails and additional roads and we explore to the left a little bit, we explore to the right a little bit, no doubt spiritually we land in many various ditches. And then it's as though we need a man to come and rescue us. We need a message. Maybe we need a ministry or a kind of a movement, something, maybe a conference, Uh, Maybe a new thought, maybe a theology, a doctrine, a dogma, a denomination, maybe just something to pull me out of the ditch. And the truth really is that the harder we try to get out of the ditch, unless it is Christ and His highway that we return to, it's as though no matter who seemingly rescues me out of the ditch, I just get stuck more and more. The highway of Jesus is a vibrant life. It's a full life. It's an enjoyable life. It's not a life of ditches. I want to visit with you regarding spiritual ditches, even religious ditches. And I want to contend with you a bit. Are you stuck in any of these ditches? If you exchange the highway of holiness and the simplicity, this narrow gate, this 
constricted road? Have you exchanged it for a spirituality, perhaps, that's a lot more complex, maybe a bigger gate, a more impressive gate, a highway on which there are many who travel? If you have been stuck in ditches, then the next few messages are for you. I want to share with you some of the ditches I myself have found myself in over the years. And I want to share with you in church history a little bit how some of these ditches almost became the perceived standard of God. And wherever you are, I pray that the Spirit of God would just be the tow truck. He would be the one to pull you out and set you back on the straight and the narrow. Spiritual ditches, they've been around for a long time. And I want to be honest and very blunt about all the many things that can detract us from this marvelous person in Jesus Christ. Today's message, I want to share with you a little bit from Corinthians and how that community of believers exchanged the simplicity of Jesus Christ for a more complex Jesus, an alternative spirit, and another gospel that they did not receive from Christ nor the Apostle Paul. When the Lord Jesus Christ ministered, He ministered so simple, so profound. Uh, folk were absolutely astounded and amazed that He did not minister like the rest, with clever sayings and on the heels of this rabbi's authority. Or He, he ministered fresh, and He ministered freedom, and, and folk were just attracted to the Lord. And we know that through the apostles, many people came to believe into Christ, especially through the Apostle Paul. All over the known world, this message of freedom, spiritual freedom, freedom from sin, religious freedom uh, went around and people just, they took it. And it was so good. And it was not but a matter of days, even in my own story, days after I meet the pure Jesus, <laughs> the simple Jesus, in the way of the tree of life, all of a sudden, I am reintroduced to the complex tree, the tree of what is good versus evil, and the knowledge thereof. And it's the same old story. It's life versus death. That tree of the knowledge of good and evil, by the way, is just the tree of death. I told you a little earlier how buffoonish I even acted after I found life. And so, Paul goes out and he ministers this life-giving Spirit, this life-giving Lord, this freedom from sin and shame and guilt and inferiority, this freedom from condemnation. People accept it, and it's just a matter of maybe days, weeks, or months before they transition out of life back into law, and legalism, but now they put a spiritual twist on it. They put a spin on it. If you do more of this, then you and God will get along. If you do more of this, then you'll prove to God you're serious. If you take this vow and this oath, then you'll prove to God 
that his blood was not shed in vain. And it happened to the Corinthians. So chapter 11 tells that story a bit. Look here, just as an introductory verse. Paul says in verse 1, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you do bear with me. I am jealous over you with a jealousy that comes from God. I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Um, man is to be yoked to God. And in a way, Paul likens it unto a kind of a woman that is betrothed to her man. She keeps herself for the man. The man keeps himself for the woman. And there's this issue here of purity. Purity. The woman does not have multiple lovers. She has the one lover. The man does not have better options. It's the one person. And I want you to notice that word pure, undefiled, uncontaminated, pure. We might even substitute the word in there, organic. What do we intonate when we say organic? We just simply mean it's, it's untampered with, it's unhindered, it's not, it's not complicated. Amen. It's organic. I presented you as a pure, unadulterated, uncontaminated virgin to Christ. That word virgin is just a word that means without previous intercourse. So that's kind of, virginity has come to mean purity for us. Obviously, he's not talking about sexual virginity here. It's obviously spiritual virginity. It's a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament, where the Jewish people, that is the nation of Israel, in their unfaithfulness to Yahweh, they are likened unto a woman who commits adultery. They walk away from the first love. They walk away from the covenant relationship, and it's called adultery. God married Israel, so to speak. Israel said yes to the covenant in Exodus uh, 19 and 20 at Mount Sinai. And ever since then, God has been the husband to care for His people. It's the job of the husband to provide for that woman. It's the woman's job to, in a way, partner with that husband in the work of God. The man is the one that works, and the woman is the one who supports his work. She's his helper. God had an economy. Israel joined in with that economy, but Israel committed harlotry. We get that all throughout the prophetic writings. Israel could not stay faithful to the covenant. And so they lost, in a way, their virginity by, in a way, sleeping around. Uh, it's called spiritual fornication when you entertain the world, and then you entertain this God, and then this custom, and then a little bit of Yahweh, and then back to the world. And that unfaithfulness God took very seriously in the Old Testament. Paul, in a way, gleans from that Old Testament metaphor, and he says, I presented you to Christ in impurity. You are clean, holy, unblemished, and spiritually speaking, you are a virgin. 
That is, you have no intercourse with Zeus anymore, no intercourse if you're Roman with Jupiter anymore. If you are, let's say, Babylonian, Mede, or Persian, you have no more intercourse with Mithras. Let's say you were Egyptian, no more intercourse with Ra, or Isis, or Osiris, or Horus, or, you know, any one of the myriad of, of pantheistic gods. And you're now purely for Christ. At least this is how Paul saw his ministry. So there's several mission statements or what you might call purpose statements. And this, I believe, is one of the purpose statements of Paul. He married people to Jesus. And I, I want to tell you all, it's kind of like something I am wanting to do too. Paul starts off, he says, I am jealous over you that you would be married only to one person. And I want to tell you all, I have that same jealousy. And you'll see that the more you discover who this magnificent Jesus is, the more a jealousy will come up in you when you see us committing spiritual fornication and adultery and harlotry. And so I have that jealousy for you guys. Every person who's ever come to Legacy in a way I've partnered with the burden of the Apostle to marry people to Jesus in their faithfulness, in the covenant, in the, in the, in the journey, and, and to remind people before God you're pure, spiritually you are virgin. And I see that a little bit as my mission statement and calling in life. I hope one day it would be your calling too. People ask me all day long, like, what do you do at Legacy? I tell people, I lead Christians to Christ. I am not in the world evangelizing. I did that in Africa. But in a way, I'm evangelizing folk back to the lover of their souls. The one that they say brought them to the dance. And welcome to Legacy, where we reintroduce you to the Lord of the dance, and in a way, my jealousy is to not worry too much about all the hoopla hoopla, but to get us just as people faithful again to Jesus. So I can sense what Paul is after. Notice carefully what's about to happen in verse 3. Paul says, I have a phobia. I have a fear. Now, the way I've come to know this apostle... I'm a student of the Apostle Paul. I've enjoyed his writings. I, I, I glean a lot of clarity and understanding. And in his writings, and in his character, in the nature of this man, you don't pick up the spirit of fear. He would even write to you at Timothy, God didn't give you a spirit of fear, timidity. You get this idea that this man was bold, courageous, so when he says, I fear, I want to pay attention. What is this bold and brave man fearing? And he's about to disclose his phobia to you. And it's simply this, that people walk away from the simple Jesus he portrayed. Here it is, look at it. I fear, lest somehow... As the serpent 
deceived Eve by his craftiness that your thoughts would become corrupted from the simplicity and the purity toward Christ. He had this phobia, he had this fear that we would miss the real thing or the real person that he married us to. So in Paul's spiritual paradigm, Christians can be tricked. After all, these were Christians. In Paul's spiritual paradigm, you and I can fall from Christ. Not from salvation, so to speak. The context here is very clearly, my mind would gravitate away from the simplicity in Jesus and rather enjoy the complexity of what I perceive Jesus to be. And for Paul, this was a real conundrum. It was a real phobia. And that's why in all of his letters, he is so stern. He is so serious. Paul did not preach entertaining messages. He did not preach pop psychology. This man was sober, serious, and he saw this as a, as, as a cosmic war. The Christ that he presented, and then Satan coming in and perverting this simple Jesus and this virgin-like intercourse with Jesus where we are untouched by the world and we are kept only for the one. So he, he nails it here. My fear is that you are removed. You are lured away. You're deceived from the simplicity and purity in Christ. And then he mentions three things here. I want you to notice how he in a way accuses the Corinthians of apostatizing, that is, walking away from purity to defilement and from simplicity to complexity. And he says in verse 4, in a way, there's another person that comes and he preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached. Aha! So you see already in the first century, there was the Jesus Paul preached. And then there were other preachers who also preached in the name of Jesus. And they preached perhaps the work of Jesus and the accomplishments of Jesus. But Paul calls it another Jesus altogether that I did not preach to you. So in a way, Paul had a very limited Jesus. Others came and opened up Jesus. And Paul has a, an issue with that. You're accepting a Jesus I did not preach to you, he would say. If you look again, he says, Or perhaps you receive a different spirit, which is not the one you originally received. In other words, Paul ministered the Holy Spirit to them the gift of the breath of Jesus to them, which is basically what he accuses the uh, Galatian people. He said in the beginning, you received the gift of the Holy Spirit. You were born of the Holy Spirit, but now somebody else came and presented 
altogether a different kind of a spirit to you. And he accuses the uh, Corinthians. He says, that complex spirit, that different spirit, you just gleefully take it. And I didn't give you this spirit. So we see that Paul gave a very limited version of the Holy Spirit. Not that he gave the Holy Spirit, but that he introduced them to this. Can you all follow with me? But then comes other teachers, or let's say customs and traditions and the complexities of man, and makes the Holy Spirit altogether a more complicated thing than what Paul initially introduced them to. And then lastly, notice here, and this is the one I want to capitalize on in our time together. Not only is there another Jesus or another kind of a spirit, but he says, there's even a different kind of a gospel, which you didn't ex initially accept it. And he says here, you basically just now gleefully take it. So Paul preached a kind of a Jesus, ministered a kind of a Holy Spirit to them, and a kind of a gospel. Then others would come in and preach another kind of a Jesus and a, another kind of a Holy Spirit, so to speak, and then another kind of a gospel that was not the one Paul preached. And he accuses them, you, you just bite into this gospel. Now let me focus on that gospel. That word gospel is evangelion, and it's just, it's good news. We call it good news in our modern English language. So when I would send an emissary to another town to go, let's say, bring good news to that town, that emissary would be an evangelist. That is, he would carry the good news, let's say, to another city and go evangelize that city. That simply means he goes and he introduces them to the good news. Um, I just recently learned of this in American history, that during the Emancipation Proclamation, southern black slaves were already declared free by, by Lincoln. But it took evangelists, good news bearers, two plus years to reach all the different regions telling people you're actually free. You're actually free. Those folks who traveled from D.C. all over the states, they were in a way evangelists going to dispense the good news that you have been freed. And I just learned of this recently as I'm learning still American history. Juneteenth is when folk in Galveston, Texas heard the good news for the first time. This is the good news. You are free. And that's actually what this word means. So Jesus would call His apostles, in a way, bearers of good news. They're evangelists. They would go forth and they would tell people how good it is to believe in Christ. Not only to have your sins forgiven, but your whole life dealt with before the cross. And then you can rise in this new life and, and you can live with this indwelling spirit and it's just so good. Good news. So Paul was a bearer of this good news. 
But apparently he had a version of the good news and others had another version of the good news. If we may imagine the evangelists leaving Washington DC bearing this good news all throughout America, what if one of those good news bearers had the real good news and said, as a slave, you've been emancipated. You are absolutely cleared from ownership. The recipient hearing that would probably say, this is good news. And that good news should be the empowerment for that slave to walk away from slavery. The government, which is the highest authority in the land, has freed you as it is in the government. You should now just walk it out, what's already true in the government, right? So that, that, that slave had to exercise tremendous faith, obviously, in that evangelist, right? And, and believe the word of that evangelist. And if he stepped out in faith, which was risky, he would really walk out the good news. He would live it out, and he would live it out by being free and resettling wherever he wants, and etc., etc. So that's one version of the good news, I submit to you. That was akin to the good news that Paul would preach. Paul would come to us, the slaves of sin and death, and he would say, Hey, hear ye, hear ye, all y'all, you're free. You're free, forgiven, walk away from sin. No more condemnation, no more guilt. If I, by faith as a recipient, heard that good news and I dared to step away from my taskmaster, sin and death, then I can live this amazing life in God. That's a version of good news that Paul preached. Then others came in and they said, Yeah, we've got good news for you. You are free, but by doing A, B, and C, you can be more free. You're accepted, but if you do a little bit more, you're more accepted. You have power, but if you do just a little bit this, that, and the other, maybe you have more power. It's so close to the truth but it has a little bit of leaven in it. A little bit of distortion in it. And Paul would say, that gospel I did not preach. So obviously Paul saw his message in a very narrow way, in a very limited way. Uh, you might say a straight and narrow way. But then others came and said, no, it's not so narrow. And Paul says basically that by accepting the other Jesus or version of Jesus, the other spirit or version of the spirit or the other good news, you are under the deception of Satan. As much as the man and the woman was under the deception of Satan. But in a nutshell, what's going on here is that man gravitates quite spontaneously to complexity where it appears like God quite naturally is in simplicity now hear me God is not simplistic 
God is utter complexity. I mean, God is utter wisdom. I cannot describe God to you. Paul couldn't even describe God. He just said, oh, the depth of the wisdom, both the knowledge of God. How untraceable, unsearchable are His ways past finding out. I don't even want to pretend like I know who God is. But I get the idea that from the evangelist Paul, the good news was that God and the life He has for me, this redemptive work that He accomplished is to bring me into simplicity. I don't know what that simplicity looks like, but could it be as simple as just enjoying God and walking with God and and living life? Now, if you're religiously inclined, that might challenge your theology because, again, in theology and in spirituality and in our religiosities, we want things complex. Because if it's complex, then surely it has weight and meaning and spirituality. And so we would say, God is very weighty, very deep. So my spirituality then has to be complex to kind of match God. But in a way, Paul is presenting God not simplistic. God is very complex as a person. But the walk that He has ordained for me with Him... It's not complex. Can you all follow with me? Otherwise, it's not good news. But then again, we hear the good news according to our predisposition. You and I are of the knowledge of good and evil, so we love complexity. So we took the good news by the evangelist Paul, by the good news messenger, the disciples, and we go ahead and we reinterpret it, we pervert it through craftiness, by the way, as he would describe the serpent here, and we make it more complex. And then we say, hear ye, hear ye now, this is the gospel. I had a gray-haired friend, oh, 15 years ago, teach me a life lesson that I have never forgotten. He looked at me, he said, Francois, look at my hand. I said, wow, you've got a nice hand there. What are you saying? <laughs> he said, look at my hand. Imagine the, uh, the, the front face of my hand here. He said, imagine this is God. This is the picture of God. He said, what, what we do is we think then the back side of my hand, the complete opposite side, this must be the picture of Satan. I'm like, oh yeah, I, I can see that. This is God and then this is anti-God, right? He said, not so fast. What if this is God? Watch this. He said, what if this is God and that's Satan? I've never forgotten what he was trying to tell me. Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He's not so overtly anti-grotesque. This this perversion of the gospel is not overtly anti and grotesque. It's It's just a little bit off. And he said to me, hey, if this is God, then even just a little bit off is no longer God. And I thought, I'm like, no, it's still mostly God, but there's a little discrepancy. He's like, no, it's either God or it's not. I had a tough time in that argument with him. It's like, if this is the gospel, this is no longer the gospel. Even if it have all the, has all the overtones of the gospel. Amen? It's no longer the Spirit. If, if it's just a little off, 
It's no longer Jesus, it's just a little off. And I fought him like, no, it is. If it's 99% Jesus, it's still mostly Jesus. He's like, it's all or nothing. And that word has really challenged me. And I think this is what Paul is saying. The good news is the good news. And the slightest little deviation is a distortion. So I want to introduce you to some deviations that we do as Christians. Obviously, as a Christian, when I sin, you know, passionately, and I sin and I fall and I, and I run like a prodigal wayward from God, obviously that is wrong. But what we have done is we've made this slight little turn of the hand, this slight little, this slight little deviation. We have made that the gospel. And in a way, we've bitten into a Jesus and into a kind of a spirit and into a kind of a good news that's not the good news that Paul preached. And it's that little deviation we never see coming. And it's that little deviation that kills us because the man and the woman, when they ate the serpent's craftiness, they died. How we love spiritual complexity. And it is a ditch that we can really get stuck in. And what complexity will do for you is on the one hand, it will make you very proud that you've got God figured out in this complex state. And on the other hand, a very complex God, a complex spirituality will most certainly land you in spiritual despondency because you might never quite wrap your mind around it. For a lot of folks, spiritual complexity is a badge of honor, kind of like the Pharisee who made spirituality so complex. It was a badge of honor. Look at me. Look at how pious I am. Look at how I have the universe figured out. Look at how meticulously I observe every detail and scruple of the law. On the other hand, a spirituality that is overly complex. It's a ditch. It gets many of us stuck. And it's as though we get offended in that ditch. We cannot quite put our mind around who God is and why He does this and that and how His ways work. The man and the woman in the garden were tempted with spiritual complexity and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God gave him a very straightforward tree, the tree of life. That is, Christ. Christ is life. Christ was the tree of life. Christ likewise died on a tree to give man life. Such a simple tree. And that is what spirituality is all about, is to eat Christ as the tree of life. But no, perhaps like the Pharisee, we are lured away to a more complex interaction with God. The highway needs to be a little bit wider. And we find ourselves in a spiritual ditch. Beloved, in our next session, I want to begin to point out some of these spiritual ditches. But for today, 
and for this particular message, can you for a moment just reconsider your walk with Jesus? Although Christ himself was very complex as a man, and the Spirit of God ran deep within him, he nevertheless never overly complicated the spiritual life. To deal with anxiety and the concerns about tomorrow, he would just say, look at the birds. They don't store up seed in some kind of a barn, and yet God takes care of them. Simple answer. And for those of us who are all concerned about what we will wear and the condition of our humanity, he would just say, oh, look at the flowers of the field. Simple answers, simple spirituality, a very straight and narrow highway, which really was he himself. By looking at the flowers and by looking at the birds, in a way, he wanted us to just make most about him, that is Christ and not the situation. Beloved, reconsider some of the answers God has given to you. Are they on the level of a flower, on the level perhaps of a, of a bird? Simple. Or if you and I landed ourselves in this ditch where we need more complex answers, perhaps even a Google search, and the more answers there are, and the more points there are, and, and the bigger and the fatter the book is, maybe, oh, the wiser this answer will be. Not so. Again, God is utter complexity himself, but the way in which he invites you and I to walk with him is so simple. I pray that you would enjoy this highway. I pray that you would not veer to the left and right in ditches. Stay the course and enjoy Christ in you. Just enjoy Christ. And as you're enjoying him, just look around. Enjoy the birds. Enjoy the flowers of the field. Enjoy the simplicity in Jesus Christ.